I'm doing things a little out of order today, so please be seated for a moment. We will do the reading of God's Word very shortly, but I want to give you a little context to it before we begin, because we're reading from Leviticus again, and the language and concepts in Leviticus are quite foreign to us, especially translating more directly from the Hebrew text. And what I mean by that is, if we were to go through Leviticus in a Bible in any other language than English, it would read completely differently. If you could speak that language, it would read completely differently than it does in our English translations. English translators, I assume for fear of upsetting our existing translation tradition, absolutely butcher the text of Leviticus. For instance, when you read Leviticus, as I'm sure you all do, as often as possible for your light entertainment, you will be accustomed to reading about meal offerings and burnt offerings and drink offerings and atonements and sacrifices and what have you. (laughs) Speaking of atonements and sacrifices... The problem is... None of these words, meal offerings, drink offerings, these, these kinds of words are not in the Hebrew text. The word in, in Hebrew for the meal offering, for instance, is gift or tribute. The, this offering was made with meal or grain, but the word in Hebrew does not mean meal or grain. It means a gift, and when you bring a gift to God, that is a particular kind of gift called a tribute. The same is true for nearly every important term in Leviticus. Just about all of them in English, I, just about all of them in the Hebrew, I should say, mean nothing remotely similar to the words in English. And I believe, and I think it's quite obvious, in fact, that this is kind of a huge problem because if you have ever gone through Leviticus and you have thought, man, this is so hard to understand. Why is it a burnt offering? Why is it a meal offering, for instance? Well, it is hard, but it's astronomically harder when a majority of the key terms don't mean what you think they mean, and you're having to go through a second process of decoding. So the meal offering is not a meal offering, it is a tribute. The burnt offering is not a burnt offering, it is an ascension, and those words are obviously much more meaningful The drink offering, similarly, is not a drink offering. It is a pouring out. The Israelite does not bring an offering, as is often said. He actually brings a near-bringing. So the word offering itself doesn't exist in Hebrew. It is a near-bringing. The priest does not make atonement. He makes a covering over, which is a similar idea. But the word itself does not mean to make at one. It is not an at-one-ment, an atonement. It is a covering. It is the same word that is used to describe what Noah put on the outside of his ark. The ark was not covered in reconciliation. It was covered over with a covering, which presumably was made of pitch or tar. And the covering over that the priest makes does bring atonement. It does bring reconciliation, but the Hebrew word does not mean reconciliation. It means covering over. So those are some of the key terms that we're going to come across today, and I thought it would be appropriate today as we celebrate our first Lord's Supper, our first true worship service in a sense, to look at why it is that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper using the elements of bread and wine. Why those particular symbols? 
We've spent some time looking at the body in the Lord's Supper and how it is associated with bread, but I want to look more directly today at the actual meaning of the bread and the wine themselves, especially with regard to the connection to the Old Covenant, and especially to also look at wine and the connection to blood and what wine means. Why is it that we have wine? Because that becomes significant when you understand the the place of wine in the Old Covenant. What does it mean? We know what it means to be Christ's body, but what does it mean to be partakers in his blood? Paul asks, the cup which we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Well, what does that mean? Or at least, what is some of what that means? I don't plan to preach very long today, as I do want to be sure that we have time to work out things with communion, but I will give you a summary of at least some of the important patterns and connections and meanings that Scripture points us to. So, please stand for the reading of God's Word again. We are reading Leviticus 4, and to give you just the basic context, these are the laws about offerings to purify or reconcile an Israelite who breaks the commandments of God in a way that does not require the death penalty. If you require the death penalty, there is no sacrifice, but if you do not, this is the sacrifice that you give. So, as I read, please pay special attention to what happens to the blood in these offerings. All right, these are God's words. <laughs> and Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone shall sin, straying against any commandments of Yahweh, anything which ought not to be done, and shall do one of them. If the anointed priest shall sin, so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him bring near for his sin, which he hath sinned, a bullock, a son of the herd, perfect unto Yahweh, For a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tent of meeting before Yahweh, and he shall lean his his hand upon the head of the bullock, and kill the bullock before Yahweh. And the anointed priest shall take the blood of the bullock, and bring it to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle of the blood seven times before Yahweh, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put of the blood upon the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before Yahweh, which is in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bullock shall he pour out at the base of the altar of ascension, which is at the door of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bullock of the sin offering he shall take off from it, the fat that covereth the innards, and all the fat that is upon the innards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the loins, and the lobe upon the liver with the kidneys shall he take away as it is taken off from the ox of the sacrifice of peace, And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of ascension. And the skin of the bullock, and all its flesh, with its head, with its legs, with its innards, its dung, even the whole bullock, shall he carry forth outside the camp into a clean place, where the ashes are poured out, and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, shall it be burned. And if the whole congregation of Israel stray, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done against any of the commandments of Yahweh anything which ought not to be done, and are guilty... When the sin wherein they have sinned is known, then the assembly shall bring near a bullock, a son of the herd, for a sin offering, and bring it before the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lean their hands upon the head of the bullock before Yahweh, and the bullock shall be killed before Yahweh, and the anointed priest shall bring of the blood of the bullock to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle it seven times before Yahweh before the veil." And he shall put of the blood upon the horns of the altar, which is before Yahweh, that is in the tent of meeting. And all the blood 
shall he pour out at the base of the altar of ascension, which is at the door of the tent of meeting. And all the fat thereof shall he lift up from it and burn it upon the altar. Thus shall he do with the bullock, as he did with the bullock of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make a covering over for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry forth the bullock without the camp and burn it as he burned the first bullock. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a ruler sinneth and doeth against any of the commandments of Yahweh his God, anything which ought not to be done, straying and is guilty, if his sin wherein he hath sinned be made known to him, he shall bring for his near bringing a he-goat of the goats, a male perfect. And he shall lean his hand upon the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the ascension before Yahweh. It is a sin offering. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of ascension. And the blood thereof shall he pour out at the base of the altar of ascension. And all the fat thereof shall he burn upon the altar as the fat of the sacrifice of peace. And the priest shall make a covering over for him as concerning his sin, and he shall be forgiven. And if a soul sins, straying of the people of the land, by doing against any of the commandments of Yahweh, anything which ought not to be done, and be guilty, if his sin which he hath sinned be made known to him, then he shall bring for his near bringing a she-goat of the goats, a female perfect, for his sin which he hath sinned. And he shall lean his hand upon the head of the sin offering, and kill the sin offering in the place of ascension. And the priest shall take of the blood thereof with his finger, and put it upon the horns of the altar of ascension. And all the blood thereof shall he pour out at the base of the altar. And all the fat thereof shall he take away, as the fat is taken away from all the sacrifice of peace. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar for an appeasing aroma unto Yahweh. And the priest shall make a covering over for him, and he shall be forgiven." And if he bring a lamb as his near bringing for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female, perfect. And he shall lean his hand upon the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the ascension. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of ascension. And all the blood thereof shall he pour out at the base of the altar. And all the fat thereof shall he take away as, as the fat of the lamb is taken away from the sacrifice of peace. And the priest shall burn them on the altar upon the fire offerings of Yahweh. And the priest shall make a covering over for him for his sin that he hath sinned, and he shall be forgiven. These are God's words. Please be seated again. I trust by now that you clearly see how it is impossible to understand the liturgy of the new covenant, which is the fulfillment and fruition of the old covenant worship, and especially the Levitical sacrificial system, without understanding the Levitical sacrificial system itself. The book of Hebrews, which is the most comprehensive explanation of new covenant worship, is basically incomprehensible. You cannot understand it if you don't have a good grip on old covenant worship. And I must confess to you that I do not have a good grip on Old Covenant worship, I would say that my grip on it is barely adequate, which is one of the reasons that I'm only going to offer you a summary today. I have made it my business during this sermon series to diligently study the worship of the Old Testament, but this is not something that anyone can become expert in doing just a few months of very part-time reading, I'm afraid. So what I present to you today, I present meekly, knowing that it is by no means the full picture but with that said, let us devote ourselves to uncovering some of the mysterious meaning 
that is bound up in bread and wine and bodies and blood. Where I want to start is by looking at the relationship between bread and wine in Leviticus. Do you remember when we looked at the Lord's Supper as a covenant memorial? I told you that the old covenant sacrifices were memorials before God. That is, they brought to his remembrance his covenant with his people. They were a a reaffirmation or a reenactment of that covenant. Well, this is true, but I was a little imprecise at the time that I told you that. The memorial offering is actually introduced and explained in Leviticus 2. I'll read you Leviticus 2, 1 to 3. When anyone brings near a near bringing of tribute unto Yahweh, his near bringing shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take thereout his handful of the fine flour thereof and of the oil thereof with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn it as the memorial thereof upon the altar, a fire offering of an appeasing aroma unto Yahweh. And that which is left of the tribute shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the near bringings of Yahweh made by fire. Now, twice more in Leviticus 2 and then throughout Leviticus and Numbers, this particular near bringing, this particular offering is referred to as the memorial. Or more specifically, it is the tribute that is brought and then part of the tribute is taken out and is put onto the fire as the memorial. Specifically, this is an offering where you mix flour and oil, which makes bread, and then you add in incense, so it creates a kind of flagrant flatbread, and you burn it on the altar. That is the memorial, and it is so holy that only the priests can eat it. The other sacrifices are not per se memorials, but rather they are offered with this memorial. Numbers 15 establishes a custom for all Israelites to always bring flour and oil for a tribute every time they offer an animal. So the tribute, which is this memorial, was offered with the other sacrifices. And so all of the sacrifices were therefore associated with it. They essentially became memorials. They were made into memorials by the memorial going up with them. But um, it is the bread itself, which is the memorial. Now, I know that keeping all the offerings straight in your head is not easy. So think of it this way. The memorial was offered as you symbolically ascended into God's glory cloud and as you ate with him. But you did not eat the memorial itself. Now, alongside this, Numbers 15 also establishes that Israelites should offer wine along with the bread of tribute, this memorial, But the notable thing about the wine was that it was poured out. English translations call it a drink offering, but as I said, the Hebrew literally says a pouring out. So not only did you not eat the memorial bread, you could not drink the wine that you offered either. You had to pour it out for God. Here is where this gets quite interesting. The priests could eat the bread because it was holy, but even they could not drink the wine because it was poured out. You, You couldn't drink it if it's poured out. And in fact, the priests were never allowed to drink wine while serving in the temple. Speaking to Aaron, God says in Leviticus 10, drink no wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tent of meeting, that ye die not. It shall be a statute forever 
throughout your generations. So here it is established for all generations of the Levitical priesthood that if they drink wine as they are eating with God, they are going to die. Now here we have the first set of connections. Let me spell them out for you so that it's really clear. The bread is a memorial, and it is so holy that only the priests can eat it. The wine is poured out for God, and if even the priests drink it, they die. Now let's compare that to the New Covenant. Firstly, it is no longer just the bread, which is the memorial. What does Jesus say? This is my body, which is for you. This do unto my remembrance. So the the bread is still a covenant memorial. But in like manner also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it unto my remembrance. That is, as my memorial. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the wine too is a covenant memorial, a sign which brings the covenant to God's remembrance. But more importantly, the bread can be eaten by who? We all eat the bread. Even the children eat the bread. We are not allowed to eat... Uh, we are, sorry, we all are allowed to eat the most holy bread. In other words, we are all holy in the same way that only the priests of Israel were holy. Remember, the common man could not eat this bread because it was most holy, meaning that it was close to God. It was associated with the holy place, which was God's house. And so only those who were holy, those who had been authorized and gone through the correct procedures, who had access now to God's house, were able to eat it. If you were not authorized to go into the holy place, you had better not eat holy stuff because it will burn you up. You can't get that close to God. It's too dangerous. And in fact, in other places in Leviticus, we see that people who accidentally touch these holy things have to wash themselves, not because they have become unclean, but because they have become holy and they have to return back down to a clean state. It's too dangerous to remain holy. Now, you might conclude from this, the fact that we can eat the bread now, that we are all priests in some important way that common Israelites were not. And that is not wrong. But the thing about this is that priests really were defined by having access to the sanctuary. A priest is someone who serves in God's house. He is holy. He has access to the holy place. Access to the holy place, I think, really defines what the priesthood is all about, more than any particular ritual that they do. At least, that's how I understand it. It really seems to be about this holy access. So the key point for us is not that we are all priests, although we are. If you're thinking of priesthood in terms of rituals, that isn't really the way to think about it. It is rather that we are all priests in the sense that we all have access to the holy place, to God's house. But now, look at the cup. We are actually far greater than the priests of Leviticus. Those priests had to pour out the cup for God. But what does Jesus say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, even that which is poured out for you. So whereas the priests were not allowed to drink the wine on pain of death, 
we are invited to drink it in order to share in Jesus' death. This brings us to a key connection that Scripture makes, which is the connection, and I trust you see it, it is quite obvious, between the wine being poured out and the blood being poured out. The Old Testament doesn't tell us that there is a connection between the blood that is poured out at the base of the altar and the wine of the so-called drink offerings. But Jesus makes it plain by saying of the wine, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, this has to be referring back to the pouring out of the blood of the sinner offering against the base of the altar. And if you think about the way that sacrifices were done, this was... This, this would have been a significant part of the sacrifice. There is a lot of blood in a bullock. It would be gross. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy help us to understand this imagery by explaining why no one is to drink blood, reiterating the words of God to Noah in Genesis, for the soul or the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make a covering over for your souls, for it is the blood of the soul that maketh a covering over. So the life, the soul is in the blood, and the blood is the thing that moves around our bodies and makes us move. It is the animating force, uh, physically speaking. Um, This isn't saying that our spirit is contained in our blood, if that's what you're wondering. It's, It's rather saying that the blood is the symbol of this mysterious animating force within us. And in the same way, Deuteronomy warns, thou shalt bring near any ascensions, the flesh and the blood upon the altar of Yahweh thy God, and the blood of thy sacrifices shall be poured out upon the altar of Yahweh thy God, and thou shalt eat the flesh. But Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have not life in yourselves. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now this is not directly about the Lord's Supper, but let me suggest that the Lord's Supper is about this. So what does it mean, though? Why are we now to drink the blood symbolically in the wine, just as we eat the bread, which is symbolically the flesh, the flesh of the sin offering? I think that there is a clear logic to it when you consider what is going on with the sacrifice of the sin offering, which we read in Leviticus 4. Before you slaughter it, you lean your hand on its head. This is just like the laying on of hands that a church does for its elders. It is the same idea. We lean ourselves into the chosen representative in order to impart ourselves into him. The church imparts their authority to the elder, and the Israelite imparted his wickedness to the animal. So the animal died in place of him. Obviously, it died only um, to the point, it only died to, to illustrate for him, to point to the need for his own death. It's dying in his place, and of course, really for the death of a perfect son, not a son of the herd, as Leviticus says, son of a herd cannot take away sin, but rather the son of God. But the point was, the blood was poured out for you. And you did not drink it because that life was given for you, so it cannot be taken back into you. You can't partake of the substitute, or you become one with the substitute, and then it's not a substitute anymore, right? That would be very confused. But here's the thing. Jesus is a substitute, but he is not just a substitute. 
Unlike the sacrificial animals, Jesus came back to life. And that life that he now has, it is something that we share in. In fact, if we don't share in it, we are still dead in our trespasses. Paul tells us we've been crucified with Christ, and the life we now live, we live by faith. So he says in Romans, reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. In Romans 6, he talks extensively about sharing in the resurrection life of Christ. But if we share in Jesus' life, and the life is in the blood, well, you see how this works, right? Or from the negative side, if we share in his death, and his death is through the pouring out of his blood, then we should share in the pouring out of his blood in the wine, just as we share in his body through the bread. This, I think, is one of the key reasons that Christ chose wine as a key element in the Lord's Supper. It illustrates this very important progression from the old symbolic sacrifices to the once-for-all true sacrifice in terms of how it affects us and how we participate in it. When we partake of the wine, we are sharing in his resurrection life, but we are also sharing in it through his death. We are being reminded of what it takes, what God requires of us to be able to partake of Christ. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice because it is a life that shares in the life of Christ, which was won through sacrifice, through sacrificial death. We eat the bread together because we are all one body, but we eat the wine as it comes to us because each of us is being taught to sacrifice himself for the body. Jesus did not die, in other words, so that we would never need to die. Jesus died so that we would be able to die by participating rightly in death through him. We die to ourselves and to sin, and ultimately we die in our bodies, just as he did. Now, these are not the only reasons that God chose bread and wine for the Eucharist, I don't think. There is more to the progression than just the sacrificial angle. I want to keep this sermon short today, um, so let me just touch on a couple of them. Uh, Probably the most important to my mind, because it connects directly into the sacrificial angle, is that we are allowed to partake in wine because wine is kingly, and we are a royal priesthood. We are priest kings. We have grown up into wine. Children don't normally drink wine. And under the old covenant, God's people were as children, under a tutor, under the law, as Paul tells us in Galatians 4. Priests are servants. They follow instructions. Kings are rulers. They create instructions. Kings go beyond the law. Now, I don't mean by that that they are above the law, but rather that they have developed the wisdom to apply the principles of the law in a way that a priest cannot. A priest is concerned simply with following instructions. What does the law say? Do this, do this. Follow the rules. The law lays out for him what he must do. He compares everything to it, and he does it. But kings, well, the law does not lay out everything that kings must do. They must be able to apply their judgment They must have internalized the law so that they know how to rightly apply it for themselves because the law itself does not necessarily say. Let me give you an example. 
in case you think that I'm starting to veer off the theonomic tracks, think of the first case that comes to Solomon. You will not find in the law of God a section that talks about what to do if two women claim to have the same baby. There is no rule to follow in that situation. A priest would not be able to help you. A king, therefore, needs to be able to go beyond the law in that sense. Not above the law, but reaching into the wisdom that the law has distilled into his heart and drawing out the full implications of the law. Now think about how this connects to wine. Wine requires wisdom to make. It is difficult. My children can make bread because bread simply requires following instructions. You follow the rules and a child can make bread in a day. It's, it's a priestly function. But bread, uh, sorry, wine takes time and knowledge to make. And even if you follow the instructions, what you often end up with tastes a great deal more like vinegar. It takes wisdom and experience to make wine. So wine in this way is kingly, a thing for the fullness of time, for the kingship of Christ. And this is why the first time you see wine in scripture, do you remember where that is? Indeed, it is Noah. It is connected with judgment. Noah is given for the first time the right to exercise judicial kingly judgment. Surely your blood, the blood of your lives, will I require, so there's blood again, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of every man, even at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. That's Genesis 9, 5 to 6. Do you see what's happening here? Noah is the first of God's kings. Before the flood, there were no godly kings. Noah is given authority to prosecute capital crimes in God's stead, not on his own accord as Lamech did, but in God's stead, to put people to death for murder. And then the next thing he does is he goes and plants a vineyard and he makes wine. Now, at the other end of the Old Testament, we have Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. I always read that wrong in my head as a uh, young man, and now it's really hard to say correctly. He, the king in Esther, is executing judgments and issuing decrees. He is executing his kingly office, and every time he does, what is he doing at the same time? He is drinking wine. And then, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus tells us, I shall not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Wine is associated with the kingdom. And so, of course, it is associated, therefore, with judgment. Obviously, the blood being poured out is a sign of that judgment. But we also see judgment in the, 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 the symbol of wine itself, not just in the fact that it's what kings do, they judge according to their wisdom. But also, when we look at what happens to people who do not drink the cup of Christ's blood in his kingdom, do they go without wine? They do not go without wine. Instead, he also shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is prepared unmixed in a cup of his anger. Revelation 14.10. But for us, wine does not bring judgment. Wine brings rest. 
And this leads on directly from the kingly aspect. The king sits on his throne. We've talked about the importance of sitting before. Ahasuerus is always celebrating and feasting in the midst of his judgments. He is resting even as he works. You don't drink wine at the beginning of the day, right? (laughs) You drink wine when your labors are completed. So it is fitting that we drink wine as we enter into Christ's rest whereas the Israelites could not because that rest had not yet come. They had bread for the beginning of the day, the staple, the basic sustenance that keeps you going to live on, but that was all they had. We have the wine for the end of the day, the thing that brings merriness and thanksgiving. Now, as I say, I want to keep this sermon short, so I'm not going to trace these patterns further. I rather want to explain them just enough that you can see how they tie into this chief pattern that I most wanted to focus on today, the one that I think is of the most theological weight, the most significant for us, the most practical for us as we partake in the Lord's Supper, which is the sacrificial pattern. Yes, the Eucharist is a time of merriment and thanksgiving. This is what Eucharist means, thanksgiving. And yes, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the rest we have in Christ. Yes, it is a feast for the people of God who have now reached the age of maturity, who are able to exercise kingly wisdom and judgment on his behalf. But most of all, these things all flow out of the fact that it is a participation in his blood poured out in the life of Christ the King, given in death and received back in the resurrection This is the life that we are called to partake in. This is how we are to live.